We're beginning a new sermon series today. The title is Into the Mess. Each week we're going to look at a person in the New Testament who has a messy life. People who are dealing with chronic illness, people dealing with hopelessness, people suffering from intense grief, people facing public scandal, people whose corruption is gnawing at their conscience, a terrified father whose daughter is sick to the point of death. We're going to look at the many ways that life can get really messy, and in each case, we'll see how Jesus responded to these people. Now, I suspect that there are many people in this room, myself included, who know something about what it means for life to get messy. And if that's you, I think this sermon series will have particular resonance, but more importantly, it will offer you hope that no matter how dark life becomes, there is always a new beginning in Christ. Now, there's one other thing, other thing that I hope will happen, which is that I hope people will see that they're not, not alone if their lives are messy. You know, one of the things that I often see is that people think that their mess is unique, that they're the only people who suffer in some particular way. And maybe they go to work and everybody seems to have a really great life. Maybe they look on Instagram and they compare their insides to other people's outsides and they feel that they are uniquely cursed. And so I hope that this series offers you perspective that number one, you are not alone. People in Jesus's time were dealing with some really difficult stuff. And number two, that their stories, although they take place in a different time, a different context, have surprising relevance for life today. We're gonna begin the series today with the story of a man whose image is uh, featured on the front of our bulletin, and I'll have more to say about this painting in a little while. Here's what you need to know from the outset. This is a man who is tortured both inside and outside. He is trapped in pain. He has no idea how to help himself, and basically everybody else in his life has given up on him. But he's not hopeless. Let's look at his story. This comes to us from the fifth chapter of Mark, verses 1 through 20, let us listen to what God's Spirit is saying to us today. They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he, he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned in the lake. 
The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this, your holy word, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. So I would like to ask you to look again at the painting on the cover of our bulletin. Take a moment to examine this man. Several things immediately jump out. First, his nakedness. Nakedness was a big deal in the ancient world. It was considered shameful. And this is why the Romans, whenever they would crucify someone, first they would take off the man's clothes because to be naked in public was deeply embarrassing. And so we already see that this is a man who is so disturbed that he doesn't even care about his public appearance. Secondly, you can see the shackles on his feet, the broken shackles. This man was so violent that people had tried to restrain him with chains, but every time they did it, he was so powerful that he broke the chains. And Mark eventually says eventually they just gave up because no one was strong enough to subdue him. If you look more closely, you may also see darkened areas of the man's skin. These are bruises. And this, to me, is the most disturbing part of the story. This man is so troubled that he picks up stones and he hits himself with these stones, bruising himself. The last thing to note is that the man is alone, utterly isolated. And so whatever it is that is disturbing him has cut him off from all human relationships. So what's going on with this man? Well, the simple answer is that he's possessed by demons, but I suppose that's not really a simple answer. because people today don't really believe in demons anymore, do they? I want to spend a moment talking about this because I think that if we don't take evil seriously, then a lot of the New Testament won't make sense to us, and I want to first address the common misconception that evil in the world looks like something out of a horror movie. We've all seen these movies in which people are possessed by demons and they start to do strange things, float above the bed, speak in dead languages, twist their heads around like an owl, I mean, I wish that evil were that apparent. If the evil were to look like that, we would always be able to locate evil. But of course, evil is too smart for that, and in real life, it's a lot more subtle. According to the Bible, evil in real life is much less exciting than in a horror movie. Evil is basically any human being who has inner conflict. I mean, think about it. Whenever we are truly conflicted, it's because we're trying to figure out the right thing to do, which means there's a right thing and a wrong thing. There's a good thing and there's an evil thing. And what we see with all humans is that we basically have these two simultaneous impulses all the time. We want to heal. On the other hand, we kind of want to self-destruct. 
We want to love people. On the other hand, we kind of enjoy hating people, don't we? Have you ever considered how odd this is? I mean, animals are not conflicted like this. In my family, we've always had pets, and in all the many years I've spent with these animals, I have never seen an animal suffer from inner turmoil. Ed, you're a veterinarian. Have you ever seen an animal suffer with inner angst? You can't say so? Say, say what? Okay, you have to make sure it lets it out, right. Well, I've never seen an animal hold a grudge or be racked by guilt, and I've certainly never seen an animal who has so much inner pain that they hurt themselves just as a way to not think about the pain anymore. I've never seen an animal ruminate over past injuries. In fact, I think that we are, only the, we are the only creatures that can want two different things at the same time. So, for example, we can rationally know that we really ought to take care of our bodies, and yet we can choose to drink ourselves to death or eat ourselves to death. We can love someone but then we can make the choice to do things that hurt them. And we know that the things we're doing will hurt them even while we're doing them, and yet we do them anyway. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, I am a mystery to myself, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. It's a pretty amazing insight. Now, the traditional way to portray this situation is that every human being has two beings on her shoulders, a good angel on one shoulder and a bad angel on the other shoulder. And I want to say that I really don't care if you take this literally or symbolically. Here's the important point. You're not totally in charge of your life. That's the take-home message. No human being is a truly independent entity. We are involved with a whole world of forces, and we're always being influenced by these forces. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And if you understand this, you'll see why demon possession is not such a crazy idea. I mean, let's take the example of alcoholism. When an alcoholic recovers, she says a very peculiar thing. She says, I realize that I'm powerless over my actions. I realize that I alone cannot stop my behavior. I want to be sober, but there's something else that's working against my own well-being, and I can't resist that thing. And therefore, the only way for me to get sober is to seek outside help from a higher power, which is her way of admitting that she's not an independent actor in her own life. There are other forces with which she has to contend. There are other forces that if she wants to get sober, she has to depend on. But in any case... She has to serve somebody. It's like Bob Dylan sang in his great song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. He's saying, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, maybe you don't believe in objective evil still. That's okay. Most people today don't. In fact, most people would look at this man on the cover of our bulletin, and they would say one of three things. They would say he is either the victim of psychological problems sociological problems or biological problems because that's how most of us understand the human condition and I I think it's worth our time to go through these three things so some would look at this man and they would say clearly this man has psychological problems which means he must have had a really bad childhood he must have been neglected he must have been abused he must have had really bad role models that is why he's so troubled and therefore the way to treat this man is to give him really good therapy. 
change his behavior, teach him new ways of living. And certainly there's some truth to that. But there are other people who would look at him and say, no, I think his problem is sociological. They would say he is clearly a product of his environment. He must have grown up in poverty. Maybe he was around systemic racism. That is why he is so troubled. And therefore, the solution to this man's problems is to improve his environment. Let's go advocate for social change. And certainly there's some truth to that. But then, of course, there are other people who would say, no, 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 this man's problem is biological. He clearly has a chemical imbalance. It's not his fault. It's the result of evolution. Therefore, the only way to treat him is with pharmaceuticals. And, of course, there's some truth to that. But what the Bible says is that all three of these interpretations, as true as they might be, fall short of the deepest truth because the deepest truth, as the Apostle Paul said, is that we don't only fight flesh and blood meaning our problems are not only human problems. He says we fight the spiritual forces of evil, which means not only are there human dimensions to suffering, but there's a transcendent quality to evil and suffering. Some theologians have put it like this. Look at the great evil that we see in our world. Look at the Holocaust. It is the depths of darkness in the Holocaust are almost impossible to understand. And they say, if you think the Holocaust was simply about human racism, well, you're just naive. Take slavery in this country. If you think that the horror of slavery was merely a matter of economics, you're really missing the deeper point, that there is a dimension to evil that goes beyond what we can see. And I know this still sounds crazy to many of you. Here's the danger. If you don't know what you're fighting against, you're going to lose the battle. And as helpful as psychology and sociology and biology can be, they don't go to the deepest source of suffering. I personally have a lot of experience with talk therapy. I thought for a time in my life that I, was, I might become a talk therapist, and I'll just tell you I've done time on both sides of the couch as both a counselor and as the one being counseled. I have great respect for counseling as a way of understanding our lives, but what I've noticed is that there's a problem that understanding a problem is not the same as healing it. Let me say that again. Talk therapy is great at understanding problems, but what I've noticed is that understanding a problem is not the same as healing it. And it's kind of funny, when you're in therapy, you begin to understand your problems. Maybe you'll turn to the therapist and you'll say, this is great, I can see now why I ended up like this. Okay, what do I do about it? And a good therapist will say to you, well, what do you think you should do about it? (laughs) Right? And it's the same for sociology and biology. The reason these fields are limited is because the deepest layer of suffering and salvation is transcendent. It goes beyond human ability. We're not only dealing with flesh and blood, we're dealing with powers. Now, this is still probably really abstract. So let's look at our story and try to put some flesh on these bones because this story shows us how evil actually works in human life. I'm going to summarize it, and then I'll try to explain it. Here's the summary. What evil does in human life is it gives people power, but it takes away even more. Evil gives with one hand, but with the other hand, it takes even more away. So just look at this man. On the one hand, he is incredibly strong. I mean, he is breaking chains. No one can subdue this man. On the other hand, he's incredibly weak. He is alone. He's in agony. He is bruising himself with stones. He's pitiable. 
And this is the way evil works. The devil says, I will give you success, I'll give you fame, I'll give you everything you ask me for, but then those very things will enslave you. And so this man has great physical power, and yet he's in prison. Okay, maybe you're sitting there saying, okay, that's maybe fine, but I mean, I'm not living in a cemetery bruising myself with stones. Does this really describe my life? I think it might. I think this man might be an extreme version of what every single one of us deals with on a daily basis. And I want to read to you from a speech by the late writer David Foster Wallace. He was an atheist who took his life at the age of 48, and in some ways he was like the man in this story. He had extraordinary talent and power and skill and fame, but he was in agony just lost in a prison of depression. And in the end, his pain won the day, and at the age of 48, he hanged himself on the back porch of his home. Now, he gave a graduation speech a few years before his death in which he spoke about this interesting idea that everybody serves something. Everybody worships something, and this is what's so vital for us to understand. Whatever we worship owns us. This is the way he put it. It's a long quote, but it's worth reading, I promise you. He said, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping because everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship in life will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual lure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. That's the end of his quote. Now, I think with really an uncanny precision, he is telling us, how evil really works. It doesn't make us float in the air. It doesn't make you speak dead dead languages. What evil actually does is to make you worship something, anything other than the one source of true life. And let me just put this starkly. If you're not dealing with Christ, then you are dealing with the devil. Evil is not as scary as we make it out to be. It's a pretty ordinary thing. It's when we choose anything other than Christ. It sounds scary, but as Hannah Arendt pointed out, real evil is actually quite banal and depressing. It's kind of like apathy or quiet desperation. It's when we harm ourselves even more than we harm others. Most people are lost in evil and nobody even notices because they just waste their lives away. So how does healing happen? by making God the most important thing, by worshiping God above everything else. 
I think the most amazing line in this story is when the man is healed, he runs to Jesus. He clearly wants to be saved. He falls on his knees. This is the posture of worship. He clearly sees that his actions, the thing he, things he's doing are not actually what his heart wants. And he's finally, he's ready to turn over his will to God. And when he is healed, we read this line. People came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind. I love that line, clothed and in his right mind. That is a beautiful description of what healing looks like because he's healed on the outside and the inside. He's clothed, meaning he's not naked anymore. He can return to his relationships. He can return to his community. He is healed on the social level, but he's also healed on the inside because he's in his right mind. Now that he's serving God, his mind, which was in agony, now has peace. And the story has kind of a funny ending. Jesus says to him, go home and tell your friends what God has done for you, but he doesn't listen to him. Instead, he runs into the city and he tells everybody that he sees about Jesus. And I think what that shows us is that healing is contagious, that when people are freed in Christ, their happiness overflows and they become a blessing to everybody that they encounter. I wonder what you are all thinking right now. We've covered a lot of ground in this story. Maybe you're intrigued, maybe you're curious, but maybe it's still easier to keep your distance from this man, Jesus. Because, you know, who knows? Who knows what the truth is, really? Maybe you're not ready to fall at his knees and worship him. So let me tell you something else. By the end of the gospel, Jesus will become very much like the man on the cover of our bulletin. And he'll become like that man because he loves you. He will be stripped naked. He will be bruised. He will be put in a tomb. He will absorb the evil that afflicts us on both the outside and the inside. And he did this out of love because you are infinitely valuable to him. And what that means is that whatever else you are putting above Jesus, I can promise you, it does not love you as much as he does. Your career does not love you as much as Jesus does. Your money does not love you as much as Jesus does. Other people might love you, but they do not love you as much as Jesus does. And so if you want to be clothed and in your right mind, there is only one way to get there, and that's by falling on your knees and worshiping him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the healing you bring. We thank you for the extraordinary lengths that you have gone to bring us home. I pray that every person in this room would feel so much love in their hearts that they would run into the world sharing the good news of the gospel. In Christ we pray, amen.